Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to New Brew, the Project Zion series that takes us through the New Testament by explaining, exploring, and experiencing the text. Our guides, as always, through uh, scripture, through the New Testament, are Tony and Charmaine Shabala-Smith, and I'm your host, Karen Peter. Now, before we begin, I want to remind listeners, you can view the New Brew episodes and the Hebrew episodes and Shebrew episodes and see Tony and Charmaine's slides and the spiritual practices, um, our Experience the Text pieces on the Latter-day Seeker Ministries YouTube channel. So check those out. So in today's episode, we are going to start into the letters of Paul and just upfront personal feelings out there so that I don't have to keep dredging this up as we go along. I'm sure we'll we'll revisit it. (laughs) I'm sure you'll push the buttons. Yes. Paul can feel very unfriendly towards women as his letters are oft quoted as ways to keep women in their place and in the same vein can feel very unfriendly to LGBTQ plus people. They feel marginalized by from some of the pieces of scripture that are ripped out and thrown at them out of Paul's letters. So I'm interested to see where we go with this. And so I, I just want to start with this question. Why do people hate Paul? And maybe we can just say, why do I hate Paul? <laughs> why do people hate Paul? Why is Paul so controversial? What's the problem here? Thank you for personalizing that. Why Why do those generic people out there hate Paul? No, that's not the question. Why does <laughs> Paul? Exactly. There's, there's really lots of reasons that have been monopolized upon um, some is a misuse of, of passages, but then there's the question we have to ask is, did Paul write it? You know, for some of the things that are most often used, especially against women, um, we have to look at it and say, what do we know about this text? Do we, do we think Paul wrote it? And the other, the, uh, one of the other reasons people love to hate Paul is because, um, we don't understand the cultural setting and sometimes the relationship that he has with the people that he's writing to. So we're going to talk about that some today because the, the ancient world was different than the world today. And so sometimes when it sounds like he's bragging, raising himself up above other people, he's actually doing the role of a, of a leader of helping people who've never heard of this religion before and are just, getting their feet wet in it. And so there's some cultural pieces that um, might be helpful to understand. Um, and mm-hmm. we'll look at some of those passages that get abused, misused, or abused that are used to abuse people and say, you know, take a look at them and say, well, why is he saying what he's saying? And maybe we'll like it, maybe we won't. And that's okay. We're not going to try and defend Paul, but we will try and help you understand Paul. So that's, that's some of the things. Why, why else do people hate Paul? Well, I mean, what are the reasons? Um, when, when certain texts are ripped out and used as battering rams all the time, it tends to taint the text for lots of people. And that's one way. I mean, what, another reason, or just a variation on, on what, what Charmaine has said. Um, I think with Paul, unlike, say, with the Gospels, 
we don't have narrative. What we have are letters. And in the letters, there's this authoritative person teaching. And so if you have an, aller an allergy to authoritative person's teaching. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> oh, I don't know. You know, you know and, and, and depending on how severe your allergic reaction is to that, you know, I, you have this person who's in your face uh, telling you things. Once again, um, understanding Paul in his first century Greco-Roman context can be a great help to, to limiting the effects of our own our own bad experiences with authoritative figures telling us stuff. So, And one other thing that I think just we can't say often enough is that these writings, they were intended to be pastoral care and teaching and correction for ad hoc, you know, this is, there's problems in this congregation. Paul writes a letter to help them deal with it. This was not intended to be scripture. Paul didn't know these things would end up being scripture. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's not um, pretending that everything that he's saying is from God, but people have this tendency to assume that if it comes from scripture, then it must be God speaking. There's a few times when he says, you know, this might be me and this I've thought about and prayed about. And I think this mm -hmm. is, but he's pretty, he's actually pretty humble about uh, acknowledging there's a few times it's like, just do what I say. It's like a parent, you know, um, <laughs> but he doesn't know this is going to be used as scripture. And I think that's really mm -hmm. helpful to say, you know, a frustrated letter to your children. Well, what happens if that became scripture sometime in the future? How would you look, you know, it's so watch your emails, people just <laughs> yeah, watch those what you put in writing or those texts, you know, <laughs> Right. And, and you, there's something um, in that, that he's writing letters because there's problems. So he's heard there's problems. So there's a two-way conversation going on. We don't have the other half. Exactly. And, and have to remember letters by definition are occasion-based, mm -hmm. right? And this is why when you, when you read across Paul's letters, sometimes he says different things that, that run counter to each other, but it's based on circumstance. And so he's, there's a, there's a sense in which he's having to make things up as he go, goes, because look, there's no New Testament yet. That's right. For Paul, the scriptures are the Jewish scriptures. Paul himself is a Jew. And we would find out from a letter to the Philippians that he was trained as a Pharisee. So he's a highly literate, well-trained Jewish thinker, but his, his Bible is the Hebrew Bible in most likely in Greek form. Uh, there's no New Testament. There are no written Gospels yet when he's writing. And, and there's not going to be a formal New Testament for about 300 years. Right. So I think put all of that into perspective. That helps. So, so part, part of the authority thing is that Paul is doing all this because he has been authorized by the risen Christ to do it. That's his, that's his underlying experience. The risen Christ appeared to him too. That's in First Corinthians, our right. letter for today. Last of all, as to one untimely born, uh, the Greek word is the word for a miscarriage. Last of all, as to one untimely born, uh, uh, untimely born, he appeared also to me. Though I am least of least of those called apostles, I'm unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the community, uh, and so uh, he he struggles with his own amazement that he would be called into this role. But you know what? If there's no New Testament, if there's no Gospels, 
Um, if what you're, if who you're writing to mostly is, is Gentiles who have no experience with Judaism and they're brand new to monotheism, uh, sometimes he's going to come across as authoritative. He's the, he's, he's the, he's the only one they've got. Right. <laughs> so. right. Okay. And this is very near Paul's writings are the earliest writings we have. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there isn't a set theology. They are having to, um, they're thinking on their feet. They're, they're creating theology as they go. And as, and as the spirit becomes evident in their meetings and that mm -hmm. then they're saying, okay, what is, what is this that just happened? Or, <laughs> you know, why does this person who isn't baptized all of a sudden be doing things with the spirit? So there's all of this ongoing growth in their understandings and, and their questions. Um, and so with Paul, it's really interesting because part of the theology is developing as in a, Oh, not that, you know, it's like, we don't know all of the parameters of what this theology is going to be, but we're pretty good at recognizing what isn't. And yes. so Paul's going to be pointing that out. Sure, parts. sure, sure. No, definitely not. <laughs> not sure about this, but definitely not that. So, yeah. Yes. Par parents do have to make up rules as they go along because it's like, yes, new things arise. And it's like, oh, I never thought of that before. Here's the new rule. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So that gives us at least a starting point. I'll, I'll try to wipe off my animosity <laughs> towards Paul. <laughs> and maybe one of the things that can happen as we're going through these different writings that we do know come from Paul is that you might meet somebody new. You might meet Paul in a new way and see how, how vulnerable and transparent he is willing to be mm. with people talking about his own weaknesses and his own shortcomings and and his reliance on Christ and the hard task of letting go of his own self-reliance. So I think that is maybe a humanizing part. We'll see what we can do. Well, for all of us that have felt marginalized by some of Paul's writings, I think we can uh, try to come into this with an open mind. So let's begin with First Corinthians so, and see what we've got today. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, basically what we're doing here is we're just jumping into a letter. And we picked First Corinthians to go first, not because it's the first of the Pauline letters. If we'd gone that way, we would have picked First Thessalonians. But we, we picked First Corinthians because it's such a marvelous window <laughs> into earliest Christianity that is being uh, taught and spread in these highly sophisticated Hellenized cities of the, of the Eastern Roman Empire. Corinth, Corinth is one of these cities. Uh, uh, Cor Corinth was the, 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 uh, the combination of, uh, New Las Orleans Vegas. and Las Vegas in the ancient world. So, Ooh, excellent. So. No wonder Paul went there. <laughs> what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? So. <laughs> it was also a seaport, which meant mm -hmm. that there were always people coming through. And so it's, it's a very, uh, ethnically diverse place mm -hmm. and consequently also religiously diverse place so lots it's a it's a busy place kind of a crazy place this Corinth it's uh, the Romans had made it into the capital of the province of Achaia Greece and not Athens but Corinth and that's where the the Roman proconsul sat and the Roman governor sat there and according to Acts Paul had to appear before that governor once and First Corinthians or, or, or Paul's stay in Corinth is one of the 
very certain dates we have for things in the New Testament. Um, we, because Paul, because Acts mentions Gallio, uh, the Roman proconsul Gallio, we, we know exactly when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and he was in Corinth between, say, 50 and 52, and Paul appeared before him. And so that means that, that when Paul was creating this Christian community, he was there sometime between 50 and 52. And the letter, uh, most scholars will put it in the middle of the 50s, sometime between 54 and 56. Um, when you read the letter carefully, you... This you, letter. Yeah, this letter, 1 Corinthians. When you read this letter, you, you can see that there was a previous piece of correspondence between him and the Corinthians. It's mentioned in chapter five. We do not possess that piece of correspondence. Some scholars think that his earlier letter to them, a fragment of it might have been inserted into second Corinthians, but that's, that would be a story for another time. We just, we otherwise don't know. So that's where we are. We're in the fifties. We're in the fifties, not the 1950s, but we're, <laughs> we're, we're in the, we're in the fifties of the first century in the Eastern Roman empire in a very, uh, a very sophisticated and interesting and fascinating large city uh, that had a reputation <laughs> in, the Ro in the Roman Empire. <clears throat> Corinth had a reputation as a party town. Excellent. So much so as so that the word Corinthianize was kind of like um, that's a good analogy. It's like uh, it had sexual overtones. <laughs> to Corinthianize was to sleep with everybody in sight is kind of what it meant. And, and so, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, you're getting, you're saying it better than hey, I would. Welcome to Corinth. Right. So, yeah. and, and also we know that Corinth, the, the patron deity of Corinth was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And there was a, a massive temple on, on a high, a high point above the city that could be seen from the city. And uh, the Aphrodite temple, though not named does figure into the letter. Uh, as as the the Gentile converts to this new religious movement, uh, we're still, shall we say, the males were still attracted to the Aphrodite temple for reasons we will get to later. We're still keeping their membership. <laughs> so, so we're not quite sure what to do. We kind of like this new religion, yeah. but wait a minute. Well, and yeah, and and I think something else that's important to understand is that there would have been particular seasons, festivals uh, that were related to Aphrodite and to the worship. I mean, that would be part of the character of the city. And so it's cultural. It's not just religious. It's also, this is what everybody does. And if you're in a trade guild like the silver workers, um, then you're expected to be at public outings, you know, at these public settings. Mm -hmm. um, and so for Christians, it's like, well, yeah, I can believe in Jesus, but hey, this is the really, this is the once a year festival of, you know, the sex and, you know, rock and roll and drugs, you know? It's, just, <laughs> it's, like, it's my civic duty. It's my, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that had particular expectations that people would yeah. do a certain kind of sacrifice or make a certain kind of offering or, you know, maybe even like have sex with the priestesses at the Aphrodite temple. That was cultural. It was an expectation. And it was part of being Roman, a good Roman citizen that's upholding the gods of the nation. And if we don't uphold those gods, we're going to become weak and we're going to be overthrown by somebody else. So if you're not 
doing your part here and visiting those priestesses of the Aphrodite <laughs> temple, then you, you know, this is a kind of nationalism. This is, yeah. you know, you're, you're not, you're not saying the pledge of allegiance. You're not um, voting right. You're, you're suspect because the, the needs of the nation are not your primary need if you stop doing these things once you, and so that's a, that's quite a, a learning curve because, yeah. oh yeah, here's this great idea. This Jesus person sounds amazing. And I've maybe had some spiritual experiences, but you're what you're saying. I have to cut myself off from all of these other parts of my life. Maybe my family, my business, you know, some of my business connections, uh, my good name mm-hmm. in the community. What, what are you asking? Yeah. And, and in the letter, Paul refutes that and says, I'm not saying you have to cut yourself off from the world. That would be ridiculous. But, you know, uh, you, you now have a new allegiance. And let me let me explain what this new allegiance means to you and what it what it shouldn't mean. Right. So that's so he, he has to he has to do a lot of of teaching. And, you know, I think that's I think Sherman's quite right. It's like um, we get a we get a, a picture here of how complicated culturally and internally, the shift from centuries of Greco-Roman religion to a new monotheistic religion that, is it Judaism? Is it not? We're not sure, but it's got, it's connected to this figure, Jesus. And how do you make the internal and cultural shift and yet stay in your society as a functioning member of it? That's the problem Paul is dealing with. And by the way, that makes this letter extremely perennially relevant. How do we, how do we in the 21st century, say in the United States, how do we show our allegiance, our full allegiance to the to, to Jesus of Nazareth, stay engaged in our culture, but not be, but not be misled, trapped, or uh, coerced, or worship the nation, mm-hmm. or worship something else that we're told is more important or most important. Right. So Paul writes this letter. How, how does he write this letter? Well, he's somewhere else. He's in Ephesus, more than likely. And he, he finds out from a couple of sources that this community he'd spent some 18 months forming back in Corinth has become, uh, shall we say, the, the, the flagship of dysfunctional churches. <laughs> Right. Which is another reason why this is such an interesting book. And we wanted to start with it is because if you've ever been in a congregation that you think of as dysfunctional, <laughs> just read first Corinthians and you'll feel much better about your congregation. Um, there's just so much going on and uh, many things that we could still kind of identify as congregational problems today. You could say, I feel so much better, at least in our <laughs> congregation. There's no member sleeping with his stepmother, which chapter five, first Corinthians, that's an issue. So we can feel way better about our dysfunctional congregation. <laughs> we just fight over the color of the carpet. It's exactly. not really, you know, exactly. okay. So, <laughs> let's, so let's he writes see. the letter to them, right? And the letter, letters in the ancient world were a big deal. A large percentage of the population are illiterate, but to receive a letter in a sense is to receive the person in person, right? The letter, the letter carried a, an almost kind of sacramental significance that that they they may or may not today email has sort of ruined that but you know we can an analogy for us would be you know if you or we have kept an old written letter from somebody beloved who's who's passed away it's still kind of an emblem of the person 
And in the ancient world, receiving a letter, uh, even if it had to be read to you, that was an emblem of the person. So he, he sends this fairly lengthy letter. And I'm just going to insert one little piece because I'm mm-hmm. afraid we'll, we'll forget it later. And uh, one of the ways he knows what's happening is that he has had some kinds of conversation in person with some of uh, who are named as Chloe's people. And Chloe apparently is the, the head of a household. This is a woman's name. Um, and her people have let Paul know that there's quarreling going on. Chloe's people narked on the congregation? <laughs> Chloe probably sent them. <laughs> Chloe may be helping to help oversee this congregation and, and be concerned mm-hmm. about she may be a pastoral care person, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but any, but the, I mean, this is one of those places where for those who have, um, you know, think about Paul as misogynistic. I think you just have to keep noticing the places where Paul is seeing women as coworkers and here mm-hmm. it's Chloe's people, but she's the voice and he's, he is hearing it and respecting it. And uh, so I think, and you'll see that throughout um, in different of the books, some that we'll be covering and some that we won't. But Romans is a really good place to see how much Paul sees women as co-workers, mm-hmm. names them as apostles, and mm-hmm. uh, those who have been in the work before him. And so I think it's that's it's so natural to him that he doesn't necessarily bring attention to it. But check for that. So he writes a letter. How does he write a letter? Well, in the ancient world, you had a couple of options for writing a letter. If you weren't literate yourself, you could hire a, a scribe to do it for you. Commonly, the scribe would make two copies, one for you to keep, and one that was rolled up, tied, and had the address on the outside and sent. And the other way would be to have, to have if you were literate, you could also hire a scribe to do the writing for you, because writing in the ancient world was hard. It, it was a, a, a difficult task on, you know, on papyrus with the, kind of like quills and and, and we know from the letter to the Romans that, that Paul actually did use scribes to do some of the writing and might, might put his own signature on it. So you, th- this letter is written. Paul perhaps dic- dictates it to a scribe. It's written, signed, and carried back to Corinth and then read when these little Christian communities meet, uh, meet together for worship, which would have included a meal that became the Lord's Supper. Uh, during the meal, it was it became the Lord's Supper. So that's that's how the letter gets back. And and Paul, <laughs> in the letter, Paul tackles the issues one by one, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> so, but if you look at the first chapter, you'll get a sense of what he sees as the primary issues. So it's a little bit of an overview, and then throughout the letter, that gets unpacked into some of these other issues. So the first chapter. Um, he, there's the, and I'm looking just at the first, oh, I don't know, even the first, um, 20, 24, 25 verses, you get a good sense of what's hap- what's going to happen in the book. So there's in the first nine verses, this is amazing. Uh, one of the, one of the things that you will keep finding if you're, if you're looking for it is that Paul is not about himself. He's about Jesus Christ. And he sees that as the solution to almost all of the problems is stay focused on Jesus. Keep focused on Jesus. So in that first nine verses, Christ 
Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus is mentioned nine times in those nine verses. Um, and only once as a pronoun, only one him, all the others are either Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, he keeps drawing them back to this is what it's about. And I think we also then get a sense of what's his motivating force. And it's that experience with the risen Christ that he had that still informs him um, on what this is all about. Uh, he talks, he uses the word God in those first nine verses six times and makes one reference to the spirit in, in reference to spiritual gifts. But in those nine verses, there's a lot of reminders, Jesus, God, you know, this is what is what it's about. And so it's one of the, as if you look at that first chapter, one of the things he's saying is, this is not about you. This is about Jesus and what Jesus has done, what God is doing through through Jesus. Uh, this whole movement is about Christ. It's not about me. And it's definitely not about you. <laughs> and he'll, he'll come back to that. So in verse 10, in that first chapter, he's talking about division. And in, 12, in, in verse 11, Chloe's people talking about this quarreling. He's, he wants them to be of the same mind and purpose. I mean, it's I mean, this is congregational life, right? When all these little things keep popping up and all these, dis and it's like, if we could all get focused on one thing and then we had the same purpose, we just know we could move forward, but our energies are getting dispersed in all these conflicts. It's the same as what's happening here. Um, so he finds out about quarreling and it's about things like, well, who baptized you? Well, you have better status if so-and-so <laughs> baptized you rather than so-and-so. So there's this this division of who's better in the congregation. So those verses, I think it starts at 12, um, mm -hmm. is one of, one of my favorite parts of this early part of the, um, of the piece, because Paul gets really snarky. When you're talking about that, I mean, obviously Chloe's people have ratted pretty carefully because he puts it in, you know, quotes. So he's quoting what he's heard from people. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas and that kind of thing. Right. But where he gets snarky is 14, verse 14. Right. I thank God that I baptized none of you except <laughs> Crispus and Gaius, I think. Yeah. I mean, if, when I first read that, and I've read it a million times and just skipped yeah. over it. But when I was looking for things for this episode, I was like, oh, yes, I remember now. He can get really snarky. <laughs> well, and he's, you know, it's it's a little bit of hyperbole because he has to back that up a bit. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I I baptized. Except for uh, those two, but uh, they didn't get named by Gaius, uh, And then there was Christos household, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't matter, you know, and it's, and I think it's, again, it's like, you can see a, a letter being composed here. And, and he wants so strongly to say, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And he kind of overspeaks himself and then has to say, well, yeah, I suppose. You know, they might be offended that I didn't remember their baptism. You know, yeah, like the whole family over here. But yeah. <laughs> so a little cultural piece here. What's going on is the Ro in, in Roman imperial culture, people are highly status conscious, right? This this culture is very rigidly stratified, and so what's happening here is, uh, based on the cultural cultural lenses, people in the congregation are saying. Who was who baptized by the most important person, right? I was baptized by Apollos, who 
who came in and he's a wonder worker and an amazing preacher. So, so I was, I was baptized by him and others say I was baptized by Cephas, meaning Peter, uh, what's Peter doing in Corinth? He's out of his territory. But anyway, <laughs> I was baptized by one of the dudes who was actually with Jesus. Mm. And, and so they've fallen into the cultural trap of, of Roman, Roman patronage, patron, client, right? And so Paul is actually their patron. He's, he formed the congregation. He's, but inside the congregation, they're saying, well, I was baptized by somebody even more important than Paul. So, uh, so what I say is going to have more weight in the congregation. And Paul's like, it's about Jesus. What she said, yeah. it's about, it's about Jesus. It's not about patronage, clientage or Roman. baptism even. Yeah. I mean, he says, you know, I did not come to baptize. I came to talk, to share the gospel, yeah. this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That's what I came for. And yeah, yeah. He's, he's hitting he's hitting close to home we we might be so used to hearing this that we don't realize this is a very real problem he probably has specific people in mind as he's saying this as we all do yes, yes right and, and as we'll find out later in the in the text that follows he's going to say let me let me tell you actually about you guys. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so, uh, but you know, this is this is real real life stuff, and so uh, he's this is where he's he has to deal with a with a battle in the congregation, the battle having been created by cultural norms that people have not been able to break free from yet, or or maybe haven't even seen mm -hmm. as being problematic since it's mm -hmm. such, especially for those who are in the higher echelons, those who have privilege, they, you know, how, you know, how we can't see that um, for ourselves. And so this is natural for them and it really does have to be pointed out. And then the second thing in this first chapter at the beginning, it is about wisdom and people are vying for recognition and, you know, so-and-so is wiser than so-and-so. And, and, you know, here you can imagine there are some people who are educated, those who are in those higher uh, strata of the societal classes. Um, and, you know, you can imagine some of these probably guys uh, sitting around and philosophizing and impressing each other with, you know, well, if this is, you know, th with this new religion that they're all a part of and, and they see it as a plaything rather than as something that may be meant to change who they are. And so um, wisdom, Paul does a real twist on what wisdom is. And he talks about the foolishness of God in sending Christ and mm -hmm which basically then dismantles all of their basis upon which they think they're wise um, or those, those who do think that they're wise. So he's, and that will come up um, throughout that there's this division, this conflict within the congregation about what real wisdom is and about who has it. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you'll see it kind of tied to spiritual gifts later on. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and he just, he did, does take some pot shots at the whole wisdom thing um, later on as well. So these are the two main topics that come up division over a whole bunch of things we'll find out later, but also this idea of wisdom, which is misplaced then what the gospel is about. Mm -hmm. 
And so those two, those two main themes, then they, they get subdivided into particular behaviors within the congregation that Paul has to correct. One of, one of the behaviors uh, the scholar Richard Horsley refers to as spiritual elitism. And there are people in the, in the Corinthian congregation. And when we say congregation, we mean house churches in the city of Corinth. There are people in those house churches who think because of their They've had amazing personal spiritual insights, and, and they they believe that they have already been ushered into the the age of the resurrection. It's they they already now have have gone to the other side, and therefore they are elite, and they have they have elite status because of their special <laughs> spiritual gifts. More legroom, <laughs> and, and the special lounges, and in, and in a sense, in a sense, they they, they think. You know, all that stuff Paul preached about the coming kingdom of God and the resurrection and all that stuff. Hey, it's already happened in us. Let's look to us. And, and Paul Paul Paul's, uh, can be very sarcastic about that. And he said in chapter four, he says to, he's singling these people out. And if already you reign. Oh, I, I'm so glad you reign. I, I, I wish that we could reign with you. He, he really pushes back, back hard on them because they, they have not yet picked up that, no, we're in the in-between time. Mm-hmm. And the in-between time is marked by the cross of Jesus, not just the resurrection. And so we'll say a little bit more about that later. But so spiritual elitism, um, there's there's issues of people within the Christian community taking each other to civil law courts to solve resolve disputes instead of, as <laughs> Paul says, Gosh, if you if you you're, you're you claim to be really so wise. wise and you can't even solve little little issues yourself, gee, you know. Um, and then there's, then there's a variety of question of issues related to sexuality, right? I mentioned the man sleeping with his step stepmother, and, and we also mentioned the good, uh, you know, up to this point, good law-abiding citizens who go and and uh, have sex with the priestess at the Aphrodite temple mm-hmm. as part of their, mm-hmm. you know, their their duty to the city. So that, and you know, he he mentions. He mentions a variety of things in chapter six related to what in, in his worldview is sexual immorality. By the way, in chapter six, if your Bible says, uses the word homosexuality, it's not really translating very well. It's overlaying a modern concept on the, on the ancient world. He, he refers to, in chapter six, he refers to, um, the, the NRSV translates it, male prostitutes and sodomites. This, we have a real problem here trying to translate these words. Um, we understand a lot about what was going on. Basically, these what's being described here are not anything like what we would call uh, consensual, mutual, same-sex relationships. It's not that at all. What we have here is high-status people sexually using lower-status people of the same gender, which was common in the ancient world. And, and so the words in Greek refer to those two different dynamics of, of the of power the, over, right? right. It's, 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 it's basically people of the same gender sexually dominating one over the other. Right. And so it has nothing to do with the, the concept of homosexuality doesn't even exist in the ancient world. The ancient world thinks of sexuality. The Roman world thinks of sexuality. If it thinks about it at all in terms of the dominator and the dominated or Whatever if I gender, right. Or I, or if I can be more, more straightforward, the penetrator and the penetrated. And, and to be the penetrated is to be lower status 
regardless of your social class. And so what's being described here is, is abusive stuff connect, often connected to the slave trade. And, and so it has nothing to do with, with our concept. So when people say 1 Corinthians 6 is against homosexuality, it's like, no, they, they really don't understand the text at all. They don't understand what's going on here. And uh, we're, we're just, that, that's a complete misconstrual of uh, this ancient uh, form of, of sexual abuse that, that Paul's saying, no, that's not, sexual abuse is not part of the kingdom of God is what he's saying there. So, so there's, 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 there's all that. Um, all that and more. I don't know. I think that's there's probably more. enough. Let's just, oh my this gosh, is such more. an interesting right. book. There's, there's a, a big question in chapter seven about marriage. Some of the Corinthians are saying, well, I mean, they've got as their model, Paul, Paul is single. And some of them are saying, well, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be married. Maybe it's wrong. Um, or if we are married, maybe that means we need to abstain from sex. And Paul's like, no, no, no. If you're married, have sex. Uh, if you're with engaged, each other, that did. Right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, 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 yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're Good engaged, if you're engaged, make a decision. Right? If you're on fire, go ahead and get married. It's just going to distract you. I love that. A flame with passion. That right. whole, exactly. yeah. Um. But chapter seven, he's trying to work, he's trying to work out their misunderstanding uh, of some in the, some in the community are, they're highly ascetic, right? Meaning, meaning that they are, they want, they don't want to do anything at all. They're afraid of doing anything at all. And Paul's like, stop that. This Christianity is not, it's not about this, this Christian thing I'm preaching is not about a whole new giant list of rules. Now I'm having to make a few rules with you because you guys are knuckleheads, but, <laughs> but uh, no, it's okay to be married. If you're married, it's okay to have sex. Um, if you're engaged, it's okay to go ahead and get married. If you're, in, if you're engaged and you want to stop being engaged, you can do that. Um, and then he, he even has a kind of positive statement about divorce in the ancient world, right? And so, so there's that issue going on. Um, there's a big issue about whether you, can, whether you should eat, eat meat that's been bought in the marketplace. Ah. If that meat has previously come from one of the temples to Roman gods. And so um, typically in the Greco-Roman world, the average person didn't eat what we would call red meat a lot. But when they did, it was almost always connected with uh, sacrifices and, and, and had, a, had a sacral meaning connected to different gods. So what so. would happen would be like um, the Aphrodite temple, there would be certain sacrifices that would be done. And then, a, you know, an animal would be, would be slaughtered or the blood would be used. And then what do you do with that meat? Well, there's, it, it gets taken down to the, the meat shop on the corner that has connections with the Aphrodite temple and they, it's used meat, you know, <laughs> it's, it's on, it's on sale basically. <laughs> and so that's where people would go to, to buy meat. Um, often again, because it was, it was such a unusual part of their diet. Um, it would be, this would be the place where you could get it at a reasonable price. And so um, some are saying, well, but that's, that's associated with the worship of those gods. Right. And, <laughs> and it won't, you know, that'll weaken my faith. If I know that I'm eating meat that, that was first, you know, sacrificed to this God. And other people are saying, it's just meat. 
Yeah. Oh, right. the gods aren't real. Don't right. don't get your you know panties in a knot there. Just you know, um, or whatever they wore, <laughs> whatever they wore that might get knotted. Yeah. So you know, so there's these these two people, these two kind groups of people. Some who feel like you know we want to do what's right here, and we don't want to let other people be confused about our loyalties here. You know, are we mm-hmm. really following Jesus, or are we still straddling the line here and and um and other people saying ah don't make such a don't be so whiny don't make such a big deal about this um and and they're they're doing the superiority thing yeah. both and for them. god's sake don't tell chloe i mean <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah totally don't do that so so once again the Paul uses the term weak and strong, meaning basically of weak conscience and strong conscience. He doesn't mean it. He doesn't mean it pejoratively. He means that some people are going to have more scruples about this. Very possibly, those might have been people who who had a Jewish background, and so the idea of eating meat sacrificed to their gods is simply abhorrent to them. But then, but then Gentile converts who are used to this, it's like it's meat, right? And so, but but what if the gent what if the Gentile converts are doing this spiritual elitism thing, which they apparently are, mm-hmm. and they're telling the weak people, you guys are so stupid. Right? In other words, they're they're destroying community over food. And and so Paul's Paul's response in chapter carefully eight kinds and 10, of finds a way. Right. Paul is trying to say, on the one hand, you're right, there are no gods but one, and we can eat the meat with thanksgiving. On the other hand, this is this Christian community is a different thing. We have to watch out for each other. We're responsible so, for mm-hmm. each other and and caring for those whose whose feelings are tender or who mm-hmm. are trying to figure out what's happening inside of them and making sure that they're good. Right. So love love is to be practiced here, right? And love love means making room for each other and being careful towards each other, right? And so. Uh, so Paul is Paul is kind of saying, I think you can say, in theory, I agree with the strong. However, because of Christ, remember, this is all this is about, all Jesus. about Jesus. It's not about Let's not about because of what Jesus Christ has done. You strong need to be very careful about how you treat the weak, and you weak need to not be looking around for things Excuses to find excuses right. to be offended right. by. Right. So, <laughs> if you are invited to a pagan's house eat what they set in front of you. If, however, they say, I got the best deal at the Demeter temple on, on this, <laughs> on this lamb. And we had a wonderful worship service there, blah, blah, blah. Then you probably would want to refrain so that it doesn't get out that, that you, you know, in other words, the, the sacral associations would still be there. So, so Paul's trying to, Paul's trying to practice community. It's really hard. <laughs> it's, it's really, really complicated, but it's quite interesting that he tries to keep Christ as the focus in that. So, so and wait, Karen, there's even more issues. <laughs> but wait. Yeah. A bunch of problems connected with worship that, that when they gather for worship, which would be in people's homes, um, the worship turns into a time of division once again. So when they go to celebrate that meal, that becomes the Lord's Supper, which is part. It's which it's right a, at this mm-hmm, time. Good. It's yeah. it starts with a meal, like and a, it's built in at the end of the right. meal. Yep, think potluck, yeah. and then then the last part of this of it is 
is the having the bread and the juice and and but what's happening is the rich who have leisure and are not working out in the fields uh, eight, 10, 12 hours a day, uh, they get there early or the group is probably meeting in the home of someone who is rich, who has a big enough home that people can come to. And so, you know, they're, they're eating and then they're, they're having the bread and the juice and they're getting drunk on it and on the, on the, not on the juice, on the wine. And so when the day laborers who are part of the congregation too arrive after dark, there's nothing left for them. There's no food. And there are the, the things that represent Christ are gone and have intoxicated <laughs> the other group who've been there kind of, you know, John and having a good time. And so this is, this is the place where we, we talk about eat, eating and drinking unworthily. That's what this, that phrase, if you've heard it before, it's talking about this, about excluding part of the, or not waiting, not mm -hmm. being patient mm -hmm. so that you can be a community together. And so they're eating and drinking without consideration for the body. And then it accentuates, once again, the different, the, the strata, the, the wealthy and the poor. So then within and the so church, they're recreating that same structure that Christ eliminated. Um, Imagine, Karen, we invited you to our house for dinner and you got here and we were lying on the couch really full and there was a chicken carcass on our table. <laughs> that's like, that's like very not hospitable. And so it's not hospitable. No. <laughs> so, so, so Paul's trying to draw them back. The, the supper we celebrate, this is about Jesus Christ, who is the, the bridge, the unifier, the one who breaks down these social strata, right? Not, not about our appetite or our privilege. And then, of course, there's, there's great disorder in their worship built around uh, all kinds of flamboyant spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, and so on. And Paul says, yeah, I do all that too, but worship is about love. It's, it's about care for each other and, and about decorum. And so this is not meant to be a free-for-all um, that shuts certain people down and tells people, well, if you can't, if you don't have this gift and this gift, you must be less. Notice the Corinthians keep wanting to do this, and Paul, through Christ, wants to keep bringing them back to this. And that makes this letter ever relevant to us, I think. So then one final big issue is resurrection. I have heard that some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul says, and uh, it's quite imaginable here that in this highly Hellenized environment, um, they have said resurrection of the bodies. That's stupid. We believe that, that the, you know, as, as good Hellenized Greeks would think this immortal inner part of you is released at death. The Corinthians are saying, well, some of them are saying we, we have the gift of the spirit, which releases it. Now we are already living the resurrection existence. We don't have to talk about resurrection of the bodies. And Paul's like, uh, excuse me. I saw a resurrection body. And that's what I preach to you. And the resurrection body is the source of the spirit you have. So don't be telling me there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead. If there isn't, then, <laughs> then this you're still pagans. <laughs> yeah, I'm going around teaching lies. So, yeah. so that's, yeah. that's chapter 15. And so it's interesting that the letter is kind of uh, bookended cross resurrection, you know, cross chapter one, resurrection chapter 15. And so in some respects, those are the, interpretive keys for the letter 
that Paul keeps bringing them back to the thing he knows and teaches that Jesus Christ was publicly crucified. A real human being was who is the Messiah was crucified, really died, really died. We celebrate a meal that remembers that he really died. And also in our life together through the spirit, we know that he is alive and powerfully present right in right here and now uh, starting a whole new thing, a whole new creation. So those are the bookends of, of the letter. And in between love is laced through. And, and I think one of, this is one of those places where the English language is deficient in, in its understanding of the word love, because often when Paul is using it, there's this sense that it's respect. It's, it's not just love a nice feeling, but it's about equality. It's about equity. It's about respect for each other, acknowledging, accepting each other as we are. Yeah. So that's kind of a quick walkthrough of the letter and the con- contents. Uh, <clears throat> any, any single piece of this, we could spend a, <laughs> a, long, time. a long time on, but we will, <laughs> but, but that's been our- definitely, but it really comes down to people coming from a culture where hierarchy, status, power are everything. It's how you know your place in the world uh, based on that. And coming into a situation where that is all attempted to be flattened. Mm-hmm. Everybody's everybody's equal around the table. And and the the issues as people try to wrap their heads around that. I mean, it would be really difficult to have this all through your culture, your whole your whole existence. Then all of a sudden you walk you walk into this bubble where now everybody's equal. So and, and think about that. If you're a person who has had status and all the privileges of it, and you're expected in this other space to treat your servant or somebody else's servant as though they're a brother or sister in Christ, or to treat women as though they deserve to be heard and that their space at the table is as important as yours. You can begin to get a sense of the struggle inside. And, you know, a really good little snapshot of that is uh, the book Philemon, where, you know, a a runaway slave, slave comes to Paul and he writes a letter back to the slave's master and, you know, very carefully says, well, he's, he's your brother in Christ now. What are, you, what are you going to do about that? Um, here's what I suggest, but you know, you 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 have to do what you can, will do. But I, you know, just you get the sense of of how how out of their own patterns people had to be, um, both those who are from the lower echelons and those who are from the higher, because those at the bottom were being told in. The, the good news of the gospel is that God knows you and loves you equally to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Christ is as much for you as for anybody else. And, you, you know, there's a, there's a point of, uh, in um, between uh, 110, 112 CE, there's this correspondence between uh, a governor and, so it's Trajan, the Emperor, Ger- Roman Emperor Trajan, Trajan and, and Pl- Pliny, and they're describing these Christian groups. And one of the ways they dis- that they're described is as this group is made up mostly of women and slaves. And so that you get a sense of who welcomed this message wholeheartedly because it told them who they were. 
it, it allowed them to know their worth in a culture where they were so far down the, the, the ladder of importance um, to be a, almost invisible at times. So, so this is, this is a pretty radical change that's being asked of these people who want to follow Christ and for whom Paul is their teacher. And and I think this is one, one place where we, we can actually maybe learn to, if not love like Paul, Paul's an (laughs) egal, Paul really is quite egalitarian about this. And he understands that this new event of a crucified and risen Messiah. This this completely reshuffles the board. It, it's now not even the same game. It's a new game, and that those who were nobodies have now been made somebodies, and those who thought they were everybody have now been made somebodies, and the somebodies are now siblings, and are are in the what's what what is the body of Christ? They share equally in the body of Christ. It's quite radical. And it's it's way we're just we're just over kind of overused to the language and we don't we don't catch how radical this 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 kind of thing is in the first first century of, of our era. It's like, oh my gosh, this is very unusual. And so, and also we all belong to churches that have had a very hard time maintaining egalitarianism, right? And in fact, some that even argue against it. And so that would be Paul, Paul would look at that and say, uh, you don't get that, you don't get it really, do you? Kind of even <laughs> like he says to the to the Corinthians. So, so anyway, so maybe we should move on to explore next, Charmaine. Or sure. So explore. This is Karen, where you can jump in and the, you know those burning questions that we haven't got to yet that <laughs> that you've had, and we've got a few other things to add here that kind of a, some larger picture items to to help us understand Paul better. So I only have only have one question that I made a note of as you were talking about the culture and and um, the social and religious structures of Corinth, and that is um, Christianity in its history has borrowed from the surrounding culture. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it a lot. We talk about it a lot when we talk about Christianity going into the British Isles and what happened when it encountered um, the native or what we would call pagan. Uh, uh, religions there, that they borrowed a lot of the symbols and signs and and traditions and then imbued them with new meaning to help people transition. So I'm wondering if that, if we see any of that um, in Corinth, is that happening? Uh, One that comes to mind from this time period is that I think it was the temple uh, for philanthropy. And I I forget the actual name of the God that the word that philanthropy comes from, but the symbol, the statue that you had seen would have been a shepherd carrying a lamb. Well, we are all familiar with that symbol as Christians. We see that as Jesus, the good shepherd. And, and so that was an attempt to take an existing symbol and, and put new meaning with it that worked for Christians. So um, do we see any of that happening here? Does Paul use any of that kind of technique? Well, you could, I mean, you could see the the meal that has the Lord's Supper attached to it as having lots of cultural connections because, because in, in a city like Corinth, where there, there are all these trade guilds, um, silversmith, Charmaine mentioned, all leather workers, all these different trade guilds. One of the things that you did was, this will sound kind of familiar, you paid dues and once or twice a year, you went to a, a, a festival for your guild that was a large, lavish banquet that you helped pay for. This was how you made business connections and found out where you could get more business. And it's the kind of stuff 
that you still see. And then it involved uh, eating a meal that somehow connected you to the god or goddess that was your patron deity. And so, um, I mean, Christianity starts with a meal, Jesus celebrating a meal. Actually, Jesus ate a lot of meals with people, you know, but you know, the Lord's Supper is part of, if it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's part of a Passover meal. But, but I think it's very likely that there's some borrowing going on from the Hellenistic world in terms of these, these meals, only giving them new associations. Um, that's one way, I think. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I think this really helps illustrate, though, this kind of, this balance. You know, it's like the whole eating meat offered. Yeah, yeah. That that brings a different layer of complexity now to the problem of do we eat the meat? Exactly. If, if this meal symbolizes our allegiance to this God, this right. So there's this theist God. On the one hand, having to distinguish this group from the other religions in in the city. Um, yeah, and, and at the same time, making it more of a natural. Thing that, that that they will do mm-hmm. so you know i think that's uh that whole distinguishing themselves from we're not this and it, and the we're not this and we're more like this you know so tying into some of the jewishness would be one one way that mm-hmm. they would help to distinguish how they're different because lots of people would have some some familiarity with judaism it's a it's a, a legal religion in mm-hmm. Spread all over the empire too. So and so, you know, there'd be that would be a way to to identify who you are and who you aren't. Um, But yeah, it's it's uh, it's always tricky. How how do you not lose the main message? And what's what's incidental and what's what's at the core? Well, and what can you absorb? What is it okay to absorb into the Christian tradition from surrounding culture? So, yeah. So, you know, the, the dying and rising God motif is present in various ancient religions and mystery religions. The difference though, is that in those ancient mystery religions, the dying and rising of the God is a cyclical thing. It repeats and it's not connected to a historical person. Uh, The death and resurrection of Christ are connected to a first century Jew who was actually executed in Palestine and in Roman occupied territory by the Roman Empire, uh, which which makes it kind of dicey, subversive, and the 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 images of the resurrection of his body, uh, not just of a kind of a spiritual kind of turn and return and return sort of thing. It's quite different. It's more linear and more uh, it more it kind of moves that way rather than cyclically. It's quite different. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that there's any connections there. Some people have tried to make connections to Mithraism, this kind of popular Roman religion. But Mithraism is later. Okay. It, it's it's celebrations and it's it's uh, tarabolians being drenched in bull's blood and so on. And and that that's it's later than where we are here in the first century. So so Paul Paul makes use. I mean, Paul speaks Greek. That's mm-hmm. his first language, and he makes use of all kinds of images from his culture, like, like the, like the Olympic games, um, political uses, political imagery, <laughs> the, even the very word reconciliation comes from political life, uh, his political life. So, so he's, he's not above just using stuff from his culture, but he gives, he, he t- tries to give it uh, a new twist. Yeah. 
And on the other side of things, another one of those places where they're trying to make a distinction, and this is one of those controversial um, pieces in First Corinthians, is um, about women and keeping their heads covered. Mm, yeah. And that's in 11, right? That's in 11. Yeah, 11. And covered. Yes, keeping your head covered. And this is partly, probably having to do with the mystery religions. So there's all kinds of religions going on. There are the, the recognized Roman gods. And then there's these secret little mystery religions going on. And, and Paul is wanting the Christians to distinguish themselves from, from both. And so that's probably why people are all hot and bothered about women having their hair down in worship, because that's something that happens in the mystery religions, which are often quite sexualized. And uh, so it's like, no, 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 we don't want to be confused with them, you know? So that's probably part of what's happening there. Um, Yeah. And as one scholar, Jerome Murphy O'Connor has pointed out, architectural styles in Corinth, Mm -hmm. people's houses in the Greco-Roman world were quite open. You kind of knew what was going on pretty much in every room from the outside. So if you have, if you have a gathering of men and women and the women's hair is down and not covered in, in Roman fashion. And there's a, a whole and bunch of spiritual uh, gifts happening. It's, we know what's going on in there. Right. People who didn't know what spiritual gifts were, or there's prophesying and things like that. People walking by would go, uh-huh. <laughs> right. there, that's pretty strange. Tongues will wag. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so part of, part of Paul's concern about, about women keeping their, you can, you can render it keeping their hair up in Roman mm-hmm. fashion and not just hanging loose like you might find in certain temples, right? Yes. For certain reasons. <laughs> um, hair up or head or head veiled. Roman women typically wore something over their heads in public. The reason he, he, he's concerned about that is because people can see into the houses. Mm-hmm. And, and so, misunderstand what's happening. Yeah. And he doesn't want so, to. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of the ways of understanding what's happening there. Um, and and, you know, he gets quite frustrated because there's times when he, this is one of those places like, just stick with convention. What's, what's, you know, what's publicly appropriate. Let's just do that. And let's not make this a big deal. Um, or kind of like the, well, do it. Cause I say so, you know, kind of thing. But it's easy to see how this gets, um, this gets literalized. Yes. Okay. yes. And so then people start pulling these separate pieces out and all of a sudden women have to wear a hat in church because, and they point back to, to Paul, Paul said, because it's not in context, right? We haven't exactly. understood. Context. Okay. Exactly. It's, right. it, you know, we have this silly idea, idea that we can open up a book that was written, you know, 2000 years ago and just read it for face value and assume that in our time, it means the same thing as it meant in their time. And that, and what else, what other book would we do that with? Um, and so it's, it's that literalism that is kind of inherent in the culture. Uh, you know, just the Bibles are easily accessible to everyone. Well, no, it's easily abused by everyone. Uh, and there's a big difference between the two. Yeah. Okay. Well, that covered my questions up to this point. Okay. <laughs> so some, something we'll mention briefly now, but in our next podcast, uh, we'll, we'll put up a diagram on, is that Pauline scholarship for almost 200 years has recognized that 
though there are 13 letters in the New Testament that have Paul's name on them, only seven of them can be uh, really connected to the historical figure Paul, and that six of them come from his disciples or students one or more generations after him, writing in imitation of him, writing to try and reinterpret his legacy later. So the, the seven, the seven, we call them undisputed letters, meaning of undisputed authorship. Uh, that you know, they're they're First Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Philippians. Philippians, and Philemon. Those those have the same style, very characteristic Greek style. You can place them all inside what we know of Paul's ministry. Um, they use the same language, his mm-hmm. his language styles and vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Theologically, they all cohere. Yeah, (laughs) His understanding of what an apostle is and what the gospel is. Mm -hmm. It's all consistent through those. The other six, there's a, yeah, there's things in some of them that Paul would never say. And it's like, what do we do with that? And some of those books are the ones where the especially abusive scriptures uh, are used from, for women towards women. First Timothy is one of the great uh, yeah. problem. First Timothy two is a great problem, but we, you know, so, so the, the other six, you know, second Thessalonians, Colossians, there's, Ephesians, and first sec, first and second Timothy and Titus, there's six. And uh, we, we will, we will do use a diagram next time that will help people see them in relation to each other. Uh, definitely first and second Timothy and Titus are from at least two or more generations after Paul, they, they, they clearly come from around the year 100 or after so what we have then is we have a in the early Christian churches a Pauline tradition. And once the main figure, Paul, dies, probably by execution in Rome, this is everybody's best guess. Somewhere between 60, 1665, 60, somewhere in there, yeah. So some some sometime after that, his team, his disciples, his students, and then their successors are trying to figure out how to deal with new new issues that come up in a Paul-like way. And the Paul-like way would be, let's write letters and let's write them for Paul. Something we we would, uh, we have great trouble with today imagining, but it's not 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 uh, troublesome in the ancient world. It's, it's common, at least in Jewish circles and in some uh, non-Jewish circles. So we'll say more about that later, but 1 Corinthians is definitely an authentic, undisputed Pauline letter. This is, this is Paul figuring things out as he goes. <laughs> With all the attitude and humor that he has. So. Right. So one other thing that's I think important and this is, this is based on Gary Wills wrote a nice little book a few years ago called what Paul meant. He's a journalist. He's not a new Testament scholar, but he, he was trained as a classicist so he can read the original languages, but, but um uh, it, it's sometimes helpful to realize that words that are so much a part of our Christian vocabulary uh, have have assumed meanings that might not have been there in the rib. So, for example, Paul uses the term apostle. Literally in Greek, it means somebody who's sent, like an emissary or an ambassador. And for Paul, there are more than twelve of them. He just he he distinguishes the twelve and then all the apostles. So. Uh, there wasn't a quorum of 12 in Paul's mind. There were 12 original ones, but then, then the term apostle meant something bigger to him than that. So it, uh, that's, that's and, different. And the woman that he names as an apostle, he would have seen as in that bigger mm-hmm. category that he fit into as well. 
So the term church, this is a hard one for us. In the, in the New Testament, church is never a building. Right. <laughs> um, the Greek word ekklesia refers to people, not, not a place. And so ekklesia means literally to be summoned or called out. And so um, when Paul uses the term church, he's not thinking of an institution with structures and offices. He's thinking of a community. And he's um, not even thinking of a building. Right. Because the first Christian churches, the evidence of there being such a thing is not until the second or third, end, yeah, yeah, late in the second century, early third, where there's an identifiable building just for Christian worship. Um, he he does use the term overseers and servers, bishops and deacons, but these are not offices per se. These are functions within Christian community, and so there's not there's not this sense. I mean, Paul is the patron as apostle, but uh, he only, he pulls rank only when he has to, it's, it, it's, it's meant to be a much more uh, equalized experience. And then the term gospel here, when Paul uses the term gospel, he means the message he is preaching about the crucified and risen and present Jesus. Uh, he's not talking about the biography of Jesus. There aren't gospels yet. And he's definitely not talking about the church. Right. And he has, he knows some sayings of Jesus, but, uh, and he knows what happened on Jesus last night. And he has seen Jesus. He knows Jesus was crucified. He has been encountered by the risen Jesus, but he doesn't have a full biography or anything like that. Um, and again, to just to remember that there won't be one for, you know, the, the first gospel will be written after, after Paul's death. Yeah. And so uh, there's not, there may be some beginnings of coordinating stories and organizing them into uh, things that can be read, but yeah, there's no gospels written yet. The term Christian doesn't exist yet. Hmm. Paul refers to mem members of the church as being in Christ. Those who are in Christ doesn't have an adjective Christian. Um, so um, he, he will refer to them as saints, but Saint, the term here means those who've been set apart or set apart for a task, kind of like in the Hebrew Bible, you know, the, the, the holy, the bread that is holy is bread that's been separated for a particular task. Um, it, it doesn't have, it doesn't have new properties. It's, it's properties are connected to the task that's been set apart for. And so that's what saint means here. It doesn't mean people who are more holy than others because he calls the Corinthians saints. <laughs> All of them. Even not just the wise ones. Yes, absolutely. Right. And so I think finally something that's really important is that in the ancient world, imitation, imitation of the teacher was the most important way you learn stuff. And so one of, one of the ways reasons Paul comes off as highly authoritative at times is because look, He's got no gospels. He's got no New Testament. He's got oral traditions and he's got himself in his experience that has been okayed by other apostles, but that's it. And so how do you teach people to be Christian, to be in Christ? Follow my example. That's all he's got. And so that's going to, that, that creates this kind of authoritative feel sometimes that is off-putting. But, <laughs> but this is the cultural way exactly. in which people learn, yeah. you know, is they follow their, their instructor, their tutor, 
Um, and so he's saying this is this is one of those places where he's tapping into the the norms of the day, you know, just like you would follow, you know, an esteemed teacher, do what I do follow and then it will be become more natural, then then you'll begin to see how this affects what you do daily, rather than like, wait, can I do this? And I, but I can't do this, you know, instead of trying to figure out what the rules are, how do you live into this? And so he's saying, well, I've been doing this longer than you have. <laughs> Try this, do what I do. And here's and- some tips. <laughs> yeah. And so these communities obviously copied the letters and kept, kept, kept these letters alive. This became their one connection to their, their teacher. And thus over time, then the, as when they gathered for worship, if they, if they had readings, if they had readings from the Jewish Bible in Greek form, like the Septuagint, and then, then, then they were reading segments of this, this letter that they copied and saved from Paul. That's one of the ways that the letters started to have different associations is that they were connected with Jewish scriptures. And thus, that's, you know, that's one way there was, there's, there's more to canonization than that, but it's certainly one, one fat feature of it. So, so. Okay. All right. So we're going to take a look at the passage, a passage and see how we might connect with it. And just as, as we always do, uh, we'll remind people about how we approach scripture and we approach it as human writings that are trying to communicate their experience with God, with Christ, with the spirit in their own time and in their own context and with the language and abilities and inabilities that they may have. We believe that in listening to their journey with God, that we can learn some things for our own. So scripture becomes a meeting place with God rather than words dictated by God or laws that are created by God that we all have to live by somehow. So it's scripture is a place where we meet other people who are on the same journey and uh, meet something of, of God for them and maybe for us too. So when we read Paul's letters, we get glimpses into the lives and the congregations of Christians in the first century CE. And we see how they are trying to figure out this new religion. It's pretty new. This is, you know, when Paul's uh, in Corinth, uh, this is still a a 20-year-old religion. Uh, 20, 25 year old religion. And it's still in Judaism. It's still under kind of the bigger umbrella of Judaism. And so this is brand new. And for, especially for Gentiles who don't have perhaps any Jewish background or any familiarity or, or very little familiarity. So what is this following Jesus all about? And especially if we're trying to translate into our everyday life. So it was a challenge then, uh, and it is a challenge now. And so we, our hope is that there may be some things in the stories, in this case of Paul and, and this early congregation that may have hints for us in our journey. So, um, so we can tell a little bit about the makeup of the congregation in Corinth. Um, we know that the troublemakers, for the most part, are the privileged ones, uh, the ones who think they've already arrived or think they're superior or what they have to say or think, uh, of course, should be heard, you know. Um, and it's almost like, perhaps for them, that this new religion is uh, a kind of a place where they can flaunt their intellectual superiority or, 
or their spiritual gifts or their wisdom, as we were talking about earlier. It's another place where they can be the experts and they can impress one another. Uh, and Paul is not impressed. They mostly, in his mind, they mostly don't get it. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is correcting them, but he's also speaking to the quiet majority of the congregation. And we know that a good number of the congregation are day laborers. We know that poverty is the norm for many, that with day laborers, you work all day, you get enough money at the end of the day to feed yourself and your family, and you do it again tomorrow. <clears throat> and we, knew, we know that this congregation is made up of men and women, free and enslaved people, um, children. There's people all across this social, uh, all, all up and down the social ladder, which is a challenge. Um, and so we get a bit of a sense that who Paul is, is talking to. So yes, Paul needs to reteach the privileged that this is not their clubhouse, uh, where they are the main feature and has to keep reminding them that this is about God and more specifically, this is about Christ Jesus. Um, but his, his words of correction to the one group are also meant to be words of encouragement to the, to the humble members who do get what this is about. So Paul, as their founder, and you'll hear this in the passage we're going to look at here in a minute, is quite vulnerable. And, and these, he does this frequently to great effect, I think. He's, he, he names his own weaknesses. He just puts it out there. He's vulnerable about his own insecurities and his fears. And he compares his weakness then to the confidence he has in Christ rather than confidence in himself. So let's take a look at this passage. And it's at the end of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians and the beginning of the second. And I'll just go ahead and read it. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one can boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So if you can imagine yourself being in that, the lower rungs of the, of the uh, social ladder of this time, Paul's just been talking to you and telling you who you are and how that's different from what the culture tells you. And then we'll go on into the beginning of the second chapter. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come 
proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. And that's the New Revised Standard translation. So we're gonna let, so we, we get a sense here that he's really pointing out these conflicts between what is conven- conventional status building and, and cultural practices that tell people who they are. And this completely different thing that Jesus makes possible in their midst. So my first question for us to consider is that if you were a woman, a male slave, a female slave, or a child, how might you hear Paul's words? What might they say to you about you? And just think about that for a minute. What would those words say to you about you? You can really begin to see how unsettling this would be for um, the norm of the social norms. So now what I want you to do is I want you to consider two or three people that you go to church with or who are followers of Christ in another setting. And if you want to really challenge yourself, um, these can be people that are annoying to you (laughs) or people you may disagree with on some, in some arena. Um, So I want you to take a few minutes now, if you can, if you want to stop the recording and or sometime today, I want you to quietly consider what gifts from the spirit are at work in their life. Be open and be willing to be surprised. Because one of the things that Paul keeps coming back to over and over in 1 Corinthians is that the spirit is poured out on all and gifts of the spirit are come from all, not just the wise, not just those who are comfortable speaking (laughs) in public, it comes from all, but it's also for the benefit of all. It's not for you to, to raise yourself up and say, oh, look at me, I have this gift of the spirit, but it's, it's for the benefit of the community. And so um, take a, a couple minutes to think about those people and see if in just some quiet and maybe openness to the spirit, you can start to name and identify how the spirit is using them and their gifts for the benefit of your congregation or their congregation, if it's not somebody who's in yours. So Paul also does this other thing that makes us very uncomfortable. And he's kind of honest about our inner workings as people. He knows that uh, human beings have this tendency to be egocentric. I know it's a surprise uh, where we want to be focused on ourselves. And you get the sense in many of his writings that he 
has struggled with that and maybe still does. And so when he recognizes it and when he sees it in his congregations, he recognizes it right away and he calls it out pretty, pretty quickly. So part of, for Paul, the spiritual journey or the journey with Christ is to recognize, to be honest with ourselves about our own sometimes mixed motives um, in church life. So this is uh, one, I think, if we let ourselves, we might recognize ourselves. Where do I find myself wanting my needs, my ideas, or my spirituality to be the main focus? And sometimes we might find that in our resentment that other people are the focus, um, or feeling like um, well, I don't get to do enough vis visible upfront things. But for yourself, where do I find myself wanting my needs, my ideas, or my spirituality to be the main focus? And then from there, how can I redirect my focus to Christ and the good of the community instead? So this is, and for Paul, this is conscious. Choosing to follow Christ is not just a reflex. It is a choice. And so how can I redirect my focus away from me to Christ and for the good of the community? So some challenges from Paul's writings. Thank you, Charmaine. Those are really um, helpful, not just the questions, but the thinking about people that tick us off and trying to think <laughs> about how, how Paul might respond to our whining um, at him about them. So um, the, um, the diverse, dysfunctional, multicultural, <laughs> Um, setting of the church in Corinth was a great one to start with. So we'll see where we go from here with Paul. But I did find a quote that I think uh, wraps up our, our episode pretty well. So I'll share that as kind of our closing um, going in. And it's from um, Namsoon Kang, who's a professor of theology and religion at Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University. And she says, theologians, and I put in parentheses disciples, because uh, we are both as we go through these scripture classes, are to look to the beyond community, beyond nationality, skin color, gender, sexual orientation, citizenship, religious affiliation. Because God, the divine, who is the primary frame of reference for theologians, and disciples is for better or is within among those individual human beings. It is to reaffirm the sheer truth that no one is better or worse, superior or inferior than any other. And ik bin du ven ik ik bin, I think is the pronunciation on that. Uh, I am you when I am I is the end of her quote. So we'll thank Namsoon King for that quote from Cosmopolitan Theology. Mm. Reconstituting uh, planetary hospitality, neighbor love, and solidarity in an uneven world. I think that's the perfect letter to send the Corinthians today. So <laughs> with that, I hope you join us for our next episode of New Brew. We're going to see the flip side of 
Corinthians by checking out the Galatians. And uh, until then, I'm Karen Peter with Cup of Joe. This has uh, been fun, which surprised me. So thank you, Tony and Charmaine, our scripture guides. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 